You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week, we explore some aspect of the world of intelligence and espionage, a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Coming up next on SpyCast. My book is essentially about a hundred-year intelligence war that's been going on between Russia and the Western powers. And this war continued pretty much continuously, even when the Western powers thought that things were improving with Russia. So during the Second World War, um, the Soviet Union was the the allies of the the Western powers uh, in the Grand Alliance. The Western powers thought they were the genuine allies of the Soviet Union, Stalin had a very different perspective and actually we we can now see conducted an intelligence onslaught on the Western powers. This also continued this war between Russia and the Western powers after the collapse of the entire Soviet system in 1991. Calder Walton is the author of a new book that is making a lot of waves, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. Calder is a professor at Harvard University's Kennedy School, where he has a particular focus on how intelligence history can generate lessons that help policymakers navigate the messy complexity of the contemporary world. He's the editor of a multi-volume book on the history of espionage and intelligence, and has previously worked as a researcher for a book on the authorised history of MI5. In this episode, we discuss how the Cold War began in 1918 and not 1947, how the Cold War continues to this day and didn't end in 1991, how the KGB never really went away, how Putin has hijacked Russia, and how China is a much more dangerous communist adversary than the Soviet Union ever was. A reminder that you can support us for free Yes, that's right. Bupkis, zilch, zero, nada, diddly squat, not a sausage, by A, telling a friend or loved one about the podcast, or B, giving us a five-star review. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I really enjoyed your book, and I thought it was a really good overview of of a century of intelligence and 
I think that it will be really useful for a lot of SpyCast listeners to listen to the podcast, but also to buy the book and read it because you cover so much ground and you actually touch a lot of the ground that we cover here at the museum, the Lockhart plot, Bistroliotov, Penkovsky, Philby, John Walker. So we can almost map this book onto our, our museum as well. So congratulations. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. It's great to be here. And um, I really enjoyed writing the book and I hope to hope that it brings um, some new perspective to stories that are even fairly well known in the public domain. But as you said, nothing beats walking around your museum and actually looking at the artifacts of the stories that we, um, that we all write about in black and white. Um, it's still, I think, the, the, the best way to actually understand intelligence history. Yeah, and it's a shame that we can only do one podcast on this. It could easily be uh, a six-parter. So I've read your book, really enjoyed it, as I say. I feel like I know what it's about, but I think that the best person to summarize it is not me, but you. So could you just tell our listeners, what's your book about? My book is essentially about a hundred-year intelligence war that's been going on between Russia and the Western powers. And this war continued pretty much continuously, even when the Western powers thought that things were improving with Russia. So during the Second World War, um, the Soviet Union was the, the allies of the, the Western powers uh, in the Grand Alliance. The Western powers thought they were the genuine allies of the Soviet Union. Stalin had a very different perspective. And actually, we, we can now see conducted an intelligence onslaught on the Western powers. This also continued this war between Russia and the Western powers after the collapse of the entire Soviet system in 1991. As I said, it's been going on for a hundred years, more or less continuously. And this epic story, this narrative, I think provides a stark warning of the new superpower challenge and intelligence onslaught that's coming. Yes, from Russia today, Putin's Russia, but also even more importantly, from China. And it would be good to discuss China later on because you describe China like the Soviet Union on steroids. That's right. <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the difference between Cold War 1.0 and 2.0. Just to get a, a sense of the sweep of your book, how does this come about? Why does this Cold War break out? We know that there's debates that historians have after the Second World War. Some people have said it was the Russian Revolution. Some people have said 1947. You mentioned in the book that the defection of a uh, GRU cipher clerk, Gazenko. He's been called the man who started the Cold War. So there's all of these debates, but where do you pick up the story? How does it develop? Well, it seems to me, uh, I, mean, I should say, first of all, that my one of the motivations of writing this was the succession of Russian intelligence scandals that appeared in the recent years in the news from election meddling uh, to cyber attacks and so on. And, and it all seems very new. But the more I looked at the history, I had this itch, if you like, to sort of say, well, where did all this start? And it, to answer your question, it seems to me that in from 1917 onwards, you have two essentially incompatible, ideologically incompatible regimes uh, in, in the West and the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union. And the Bolsheviks were um, extremely weak and fragile in their, in their power in the early years. 
which made their foreign intelligence collection all the more aggressive. Often we find, I don't need to tell you this, Andrew, but we find the weaker states that have the more aggressive form of foreign intelligence. And so the more I looked at this, the more I realized that actually what we think is the Cold War that we learn about in school books starting after 1945, maybe starting in 1947 with the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan and so on and so forth. Actually, this what, what we find was that there was an ideological um, battle with intelligence agencies at the front line before the Second World War. Um, and that really what we find is these big momentous events after the Second World War was the Western powers, principally the United States, readjusting uh, to uh, a challenge from the Soviet Union that they were already in, but they just didn't know about it. You outline in the book how whenever the West dials back on the uh, aggressiveness of their espionage with regards to their focus towards the Soviet Union and then later Russia, that's actually when the Soviet Union stroke Russia dials it up. It's not like the West dials it back and they dial it back. They just see that as an opportunity to dial it up. That's exactly right. It seems to be exactly the case that, I mean, two, two, two moments come to mind for exactly that. The first being the period of detente in the 1970s. Well, there's a debate about when detente started, but let's say it started in the, let's say it's the 1970s and easing a thawing of relations between the Soviet Union and Western powers. And, and, the U.S. government opened up trade alliances and so on and so forth with the Soviet Union, allowed for greater commercial cooperation uh, with the hope that actually exposure to Western commerce would change the Soviet Union's uh, policies. We can debate about the extent to which it did so, but what we can certainly say for certain is that the Soviet intelligence services, principally the KGB, saw this as an opportunity of uh, pushing at an open door to collect massive, massive amounts of science and technological intelligence from uh, the West, particularly the United States. So industrial-scale espionage being conducted during detente. And then, as you said, with the dialing back of, of, of um, relations, most clearly after 1991, when the Soviet Union had collapsed, and famously in the West, a lot of policymakers and thinkers considered this to be the end of history, that Western capitalism had triumphed. Um, we did uh, Communism and the Soviet Union was consigned into the dustbin of history, as, as the saying goes. On the contrary, the, uh, the remnants of the KGB soon uh, coalesced into new agencies with an aggressive vendetta against the United States. And it seems to me that one of the, the, the least appreciated chapters is how in the post-Cold War years, the Russian government continued running former Soviet agents deep inside uh, the Western governments, particularly uh, in, in the US intelligence community. So it was, it was business as usual. So the idea that the Cold War simply finished with the Soviet Union collapsing in 1991, that's how it looked in the West. It looked very different if you were in the Kremlin at that time, and you were a, a spy chief in particular. And I, I think, Andrew, that that period, uh, we are all living through the consequences of that period right now with Putin, because this is exactly the um, revanchist, vendetta-driven um, elements of the KGB that Putin grew out of 
um, at that time. I'm afraid that looking at this long history of easing relations between East and West, but a continuation of the intelligence war that was going on silently, largely from Russia against uh, Western powers. My conclusion, unfortunately, Andrew, is that looking at this large sweep of history, that we have not so much a Putin problem today, but a Russia problem. And the Russia problem has been persistent over this hundred years, which is why it makes me very cautious about speculation you see in the news today of if you remove Putin, things will get, things will get better. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to me that, that Putin, the people he surrounds himself with uh, in the Kremlin, are all cut from this very similar cloth as, as he is. Same background, same outlook. And he is far from unique uh, amongst the, the people he associates with, who, who, in fact, some of them are much more hardline than him and perhaps have clearer heads. So, we, as I said, Andrew, it seems to me we have a, a Russia problem, not a Putin problem. And looking at this in the grand sweep, you've been doing this for seven years of research and, and writing, uh, so you're a really good person to ask this question. Could it have been otherwise? You know, this is a great question for a couple of historians to discuss, and there's different views on counterfactuals, but let's just say Putin's not identified um, after the Cold War uh, ends. Let's say that it goes to someone else. You know, you know, you, you talk about the interaction between structural forces and the book and human agency. So, so could it have been different, or was just were there too many structural factors that were pushing us in this direction that it wouldn't have mattered? Yeah, help us understand that. Well, I'm a big believer in yes that there are structural forces that that push history forwards, but I'm also a big believer that people that we make our own destiny and that nothing is inevitable. So to answer your, your, your really good question, there were, there were forks in the road, which, you know, with hindsight, with a, a bit more luck or a bit more pushing, could have made history go differently, future history. For me, the most revealing moment in this context, actually, there relates to some files, some British Foreign Office files that were declassified just last year. And I managed to get hold of them just before as I was finishing the book, and they, they were released under the 30-year rule. Um, so they, they, they relate to the early 1990s, 91, 92. And one of the Foreign Office files is about Russia's intelligence services, the new intelligence service. And in the file, um, the MI6 um, head of station in Moscow at the time, John Scarlett, who went on to become a chief of MI6, he's working... Under, under diplomatic cover in the British Embassy in Moscow. And he writes back to London Foreign Office and says that, that for the first time in history, the Russian government is placing some sort of independent political oversight over its intelligence, its, its new intelligence services, what was quickly called the SVR and the FSB. And he said, this is groundbreaking. This is nothing like this has happened in the Soviet period. And, and in the margin, actually, ironically, your listeners will find this funny. Some someone in Whitehall uh, in the in the Foreign Office wrote, maybe the Russian government can advise us about how to do this for our own intelligence services, <laughs> because MI6 and GCHQ weren't given statutory um, footing uh, until 1994. So the Russian government was actually doing this ahead of the British government. Scarlett says in in his um, reports back to to London 
some this was unprecedented this looked good but he was very cautious about the actual um outlook he said that it all depends on whether kremlin leaders yeltsin at that time would break with the entire history of the soviet russian state and not interfere in their intelligence services and not use them as political beasts so here we are at a, at a at a fork in the road would yeltsin and the people in particular his intelligence chiefs not really break with all of that tradition and not see them as some um, political uh tools monsters we might say scarlet's uh pessimism was proved right unfortunately because the intelligence services and the political masters in the kremlin quickly saw them as indispensable for 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 yeltsin's government and it's as i said out of that stew that putin emerged uh becoming head of the fsb in 1998 and then to everyone's surprise including he himself putin um becoming russia's leader at the end of the century and help me understand colder why this um epic intelligence war continued so it's born of two mutually incompatible ideological systems but then one of those systems disappears or the ideological system <laughs> disappears obviously the 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 nationalistic elements of russia seeing itself as a particular type of state within on the world stage those things continue but the ideological nature of this animus disappears so if that's what it took to begin it why does it stop or are we really just talking about during the entirety of this long cold war that you describe by the time we get to the end of it it's a machine you can take away the ideological component but it's just the machine that's running by itself at that point there's the the structures there the intelligence and security apparatus there so it's going to continue regardless minus the ideological aspect yeah just help me understand how you kind of understand the continuation of the conflict after 1991 the way that i i see it and i'm understanding it through interviews and through looking at declassified records is that yes the, the the machine was as you sort of illustrated to to a certain extent running itself but the primary motivation for an aggressive foreign intelligence policy on the part of Russia in the 1990s was quickly becoming revenge so the soviet union in this narrative did not collapse under the under its own weight it wasn't an, a knight dying in its own armor as john lecarre put it but rather was the victim of a massive conspiracy of sabotage principally by the CIA and by traitors within that the that the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia was no longer a great power it was humiliated on the on the world stage even worse than humiliated it was bankrupt with people starving on the streets russia's place in in destiny had been had been foiled by hidden outside hands this was the narrative in the 1990s it within the the, the svr and the fsb so you have the ideology has gone as you said but now ideology has been replaced by a different type of ideology which is the desire to become a resurgent great power uh and that still exists today but i would like to make one i think corrective to the idea that this is about great powers this quite your 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 question really goes to the heart of this of 
was was the Soviet Union uh, just a great power, you know, by another name, and the ideolo- ideology wasn't perhaps that important, and that perhaps in that narrative, when the Soviet Union disappeared into history, we're still left with Russia uh, wanting to be a great power. So maybe that was the cause all along. We, we can debate that to the to the uh, <laughs> all day all night to the cows <laughs> come home. But it seems to me that there's an significant corrective that needs to be made about the notion that Russia is a great power today. Of course, it wants to be a great power. But I think that the, the, the phraseology that you, you, you hear in particularly Washington about the resurgent great power, great power competition, it's far too polite when it comes to Russia. Russia is effectively under Putin a mafia state. He runs it um, not so much as a great power but as a mafia syndicate. And he uses the FSB in order to conduct massive state-run corruption and money laundering schemes for his own personal enrichment and those of the Russian oligarchs. So the, the phraseology of great power politics, I think, does disservice to really the, the, the ugly reality and criminality of Putin's gangster regime. He wants it to be seen as a, as a, as a great power. But in fact, since coming to power at the turn of the century, he's been the hooligan of international relations. I just done some research before the interview just to compare the trajectory of the United States and Russia since the Cold War. Uh, at present, Russia's GDP, you know, there's all different ways we could compare this. So economists and statisticians <laughs> give us some grace. But Russia, we're talking about just over $12,000 uh, GDP per capita. The United States, we're talking about $63,000. So huge disparity. And then the Russian population since the Cold War ended, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it's went down by 2%, which doesn't seem like a lot, uh, although it's lost 2 million people since the war in Ukraine began as well. But the US population at the same time has increased by 33%, so an additional third if we want to talk about great powers in history, it's by no means comparable to the United States. If anything, the United States is stronger than it was at the end of the Cold War and Russia is weaker than it was. So I think the terminology is important, right? I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, even in the heyday of the Soviet Union, it was effectively a a superpower with nuclear weapons, but with a quote-unquote third world country uh, attached to it. Um, So it's life expectancy quality of living were all uh, comparable to the poorest countries in in Western Europe or parts of the third world. Russia has a relatively small economy, as you've said. It produces essentially very little that the rest of the world wants, apart from oil and gas. For those exact reasons, it's um, because it's small in terms of economic weight, I think that that is exactly the reason that has led to, because of its insecurity, led to more aggressive foreign intelligence uh, policy uh, that we're seeing play out. I think it's also worth pointing out that that Putin has unfortunately done a good job of sanction-proofing his economy. So actually, I mean, this, the statistics, although Russia's economy is small, um, you know, in a sort of middle-ranking Western European um, country, a poor, a poor country in Western Europe, we should say. He has sanction-proofed the Russian economy between 2014 and the, and the present day. 
um, which has meant that the Russian economy has coped far better than I think most people were expecting from the sanctions after the start of the war in Ukraine. And now, of course, Putin has allied himself in, a, in an agreement with no limits um, to the world's true new superpower, uh, China. Where does this resentment come from? Where does this sense of righteous victimhood come from, uh, the insecurity that you speak about? And I know that we've seen it during Putin and since the Cold War ended, but you know, you could argue that we've seen it like way back when. It's always interesting to me as someone who comes from a small country that big countries always invade small countries because of their security. Uh, and they always say we're doing this to keep ourselves safe and the small countries like, well, what about our safety? Hang you on, know, so, what? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm being a little bit playful, but just help us understand this. You know, and George Kennan talks about this a little bit and the, the, you know, the famous long telegram, the nature of the Russian character and the Russian state. How do you understand us? Well, there was the Russian character that Kenin uh, so eloquently wrote about, but there was also then the the Marxist-Leninist dialectic, which told the Bolsheviks that the future was theirs, that they were destined, that it was inevitable that the workers of the world would unite and that there would be a socialist utopia. Now, the reality on the ground was very different, of course, and that Soviet leaders who visited uh, Western countries Khrushchev famously coming to the United States, said, well, you might be rich now, but we're going to be rich in the future. So destiny was on their side. And the problem is when destiny, manifest destiny, looks very different to the reality uh, in front of you. And I think it's that is a long-standing thread uh, on um, Russia's perceived victimhood over the years in the 1990s, it was much more practical as the, as the Russian economy tanked and you had former Red Army um, officers begging for food outside of McDonald's and Pizza Hut in Moscow. This is, you know, a striking illustration of both the perceived vulture capitalism of Western um, countries swooping in to steal Russia's oil uh, and you know, money in the 1990s, and also then a feeling of, well, we were once a great power, and what the hell's happened, and why, what's going wrong? So it, to answer your very poignant question, it seems to me that nothing breeds aggression like humiliation, and humiliation was the, the name of the game for Russia in the 1990s. Calder's book, The Soviet Union, is the West's major opponent for most of the 20th century, while China is deemed to be the West's major opponent for the rest of the 21st. The Soviet Union was communist, and China is, at least on paper, still communist. To help you digest this episode then, here are a few facts about the state of communism today. Four countries still officially espouse this doctrine. Cuba and the Western Hemisphere as well as China and two of its immediate Southeast Asian neighbours, Vietnam and Laos. North Korea is often considered a communist country, but it no longer considers itself one, removing all references to the ideology from its constitution. Remember that not long ago, pretty much all of Eastern and Central Europe and Central Asia were one-party communist states, that Africa had many communist countries such as Angola, Mozambique and Ethiopia, 
that Central and South America were beset by communist insurgencies in places such as Guatemala, Colombia and Peru. This is not even to mention those other communist-led states such as Cambodia, Mongolia, Albania and Yugoslavia. Its power as a force in multi-party states has likewise been on a long, ever-downward decline. In 1946, for example, the French Communist Party had more votes and seats than any other party. Yet in the 2022 elections, they struggled to get 3% of the vote. Their membership, meanwhile, has declined tenfold since the 1970s. In India, meanwhile, the Communist Party emerged as the second largest in primary opposition in the 1957 election. Yet it was 19th by share of seats won in the most recent elections of 2019. At the International Spy Museum, we have a key artefact that speaks to the intellectual history of not just communism, but of the 20th century and indeed the modern age. The ice axe that was used to kill Leon Trotsky in a covert operation planned by the NKVD at the behest of Joseph Stalin. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Accelerating cyber threats demand greater cooperation for increased collective defense. With a large and open ecosystem of zero-trust partners, Microsoft empowers mission innovation that's secure by design. Whether it's optimizing existing defenses or implementing industry-leading AI to better protect more of your digital estate, Microsoft is your trusted partner to stay ahead of emerging threats. Let's work together to advance your cyber journey. Visit us online today at aka.ms slash ms cybersecurity. That's aka.ms slash ms cybersecurity. It's, it's a very interesting period in the 90s when people were busy... Uh, you know, disassembling Soviet studies apart the departments and so forth. <laughs> and everybody thought that it wasn't a problem anymore. It was all going to be fine in the end. That's right. One of the most striking um, interviews I conducted was with a former Czech intelligence STB 
uh, officer, Larry Bittman, who, who your listeners might, might remember, be aware of. He passed away, unfortunately, soon after I interviewed him. And I think he died in 2019. But when I interviewed him 2018, I asked him what it was like teaching at Boston University about disinformation in the 1990s. And he said, well, in the 1980s, the decade before, it was a heyday. And there weren't, he had to keep people away from his course. You know, it was too many people were wanted to know about it. In the 1990s, the university was saying, well, you know, this is all done now. Like, we don't need to worry about this, do we? Well, uh, unfortunately, the first two decades of the 21st century have shown that we do still need to worry about this. In the course of your research, Calder, is there anything that you came across that was really surprising to you or really shocking? So something that you were like, wow, this is really contrary to everything that I expected? Was there something that, that truly shocked me? I think one of the most shocking documents and revelations I found, which cuts against the, the Kremlin narrative of um, some of its heroes of Russian foreign intelligence, relates to the notorious uh, spy in MI6, Kim Philby. And the document that was really shocking to me and surprising was a report that Philby wrote to his bosses in MI6 soon after the defection of Burgess and McLean. So the hunt was on for the so-called two missing diplomats. Nobody knew where they were at that point in 1951. We now know they were actually already behind the, uh, the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. They defected, but nobody really knew where they were. Philby knew at this point that his association with Guy Burgess was going to make him a suspect. In the Kremlin's narrative, during the Cold War, and then later now, even more so uh, in Putin's narrative, Philby stoically didn't say anything and kept stum about his relationship with Burgess and McLean and foiled the attempts by British intelligence during interviews to extract anything from him. Not so much as we can now see from MI5's dossiers. Philby, in fact, betrayed Burgess and McLean to his bosses in MI6 didn't tell the, the Soviet Union about this, of course. He was actually the one who said there may be something about Burgess and McLean from their time at university, which meant that one or the other uh, recruited each other and that maybe they have now in some way managed to uh, plant a, an escape uh, to the Soviet Union. That was what he was doing at the time in order to try to save himself, deflect attention from himself, cast it on to Burgess and McLean. What we see is that actually Philby, the, the, Krem the Kremlin, the KGB's master spy, betrayed everyone. He betrayed the British. He also betrayed his two fellow Soviet agents, Burgess and McLean. I was pretty alarmed when I read that, actually. And when was it he'd done this? What's the timeline? 1951. There's a couple, a few other bombshells that you mention in the book as well, which I think is quite interesting. So you speak about the Russian assassination program. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, again, here at the museum, we've got stuff on Skirpal and Litvinenko and um, Georgi Markov and so forth. But... 
Help us understand this assassination program over the the long sweep of your book. Absolutely. So I think the first thing to say is that Putin has, it seems to me, reactivated the KGB's old um, assassination program. And he's done so, like the KGB, by assassinating uh, political opponents in Western countries. So Alexander Litvinenko assassinated using radioactive polonium in London in 2006, Sergei Skripal in 2018. These aren't two separate incidents. There's been a, a slew of other Russian attempted assassinations and assassinations in Western countries. Once again, it would be misleading to see this as something that Putin has created by himself. Being a former KGB officer in its first chief directorate and having been to the Andropov school um, where he studied active measures, he knew full well the KGB's long history of eliminating political opponents, chief among whom during the Cold War were Ukrainian nationalists living in exile in Western Europe. Uh, And again, this isn't something that is a distant past for Putin, but in fact, something that is history that is still alive. So Putin has called, infamously called Zelensky a Banderite and Bandera, Stepan Bandera, this is a reference to the famous Ukrainian nationalist who ended up living in West Germany and working with the CIA. The KGB hunted him down and assassinated him using, again, extremely exotic methods of, of killing him. Putin has called Zelensky a Banderite in direct reference to working with foreign intelligence services. He's a pawn of the, of the West. Stepan Bandera, in a, in a dark period of his own history and Ukraine's history, collaborated with the Nazis for a brief period during the Second World War. Bandera's hatred of the Soviet Union was even more so than his hatred of the Nazis and also his anti-Semitism, it has to be said. This is why... Putin today calls Zelensky a Banderite neo-Nazi. This is a reference to that period. It's entirely unsurprising to see that the Russian government has attempted to assassinate Zelensky. This is exactly what the Kremlin did with Bandera in the 1950s. You know, during the Cold War, there was this idea that the KGB were 10 feet tall and they could reach anyone anywhere and they were super sophisticated about how they'd done everything. But if you look at uh, Skirpal and Litvinenko and so forth, I mean, what do you see going on there? Have Russian intelligence agencies, are they just not that good at assassinations anymore? Or is it just a case of we don't care if it's sloppy and we don't care if people trace it back to us because this is also a marker that we can come and get you and we just we just don't care. I think I think that's partly right. There's a sort of recklessness, uh, indifference to whether something actually works, because it's about sending a message. Um, I think that's the case, probably with Putin. I mean, we we should say first and foremost, we don't know because um, <laughs> um, Putin's worldview and his internal thinking are um, notoriously difficult to, <laughs> to understand. <laughs> um, but. 
one of the things that I was really struck by researching this this book is how actually if you scratch the surface some of the major soviet intelligence successes during the cold war the profound uh successes that the putin's kremlin attached much weight to today scratch the surface and some of these major successes were actually derived from the motivation of individual agents not from the breathtaking, masterful espionage tradecraft um, on the part of the Soviet services. So during the Cold War, during the Second World War, some of the atomic, uh, the atom spies that that successfully stole the Anglo-American plans for the atomic bomb and delivered them to the Kremlin. Well, actually, Soviet intelligence was finding it hard to keep up with the amount of information that was being thrown their way. So this was, this was actually the motivation of ideologically committed communists uh, within um, the uh, atomic bomb project. We also find, scratch the surface, that again, some of the masterful post-war, Cold War, Soviet intelligence successes, like the Cambridge Five, in fact, as you said, as I sort of as I suggested earlier, were derived again by the motivation of the individual spies, not the breathtaking tradecraft. So the key points with the hunt for the Cambridge Five, as the net was closing in on 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 Philby in particular when he was in Washington, he tried to meet up with his Soviet handler, who was nowhere to be seen. Badly let him down. So this is uh, this narrative of actually Russian intelligence, past and present, look under the hood, and they're not 10 feet tall. And in fact, some of the great successes are due to luck, due to the motivation of agents, rather than master puppeteers that they, that they uh, want to portray themselves as on, world, on, the, on the world stage. And it's an interesting counterfactual if you were to take away that ideological component of the Soviet Union, uh, because this is a major motivator for so many of the the Western spies. It's not necessarily sometimes that they're even being recruited; they're going and offering their services because they believe in the in the cause. So, if you take that away, it would be quite interesting to see how effective the intelligence services would have been. Absolutely. No, ideologically committed, um, almost self-sacrificing agents. As I said, this was, they were recruiting themselves in many ways, uh, motivated. And that was, I mean, certainly in the, in the pre-war years. So take away that. I think you're absolutely right that some of the towering successes of Soviet foreign intelligence wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for these ideologically committed uh, agents. Uh, like Philby and others. This is a slightly longer interlude, but I think it is really, really important, so please forgive me. The question you may be asking yourself is, so, is China really communist? Great question. But to some extent, it's like asking, who are the real Christians? Roman Catholics, Orthodox Greeks or Ethiopians, Presbyterians, Baptists or Methodists? Sure, 
they all refer back to a core text, in this case the Bible, but interpretations of that text just are different, as indeed are the books that make up the accepted canon. For example, Catholic Bibles have 73 books, Orthodox Greeks 79, Orthodox Ethiopians 81, and Protestant denominations 66. So, are they all Christians, or only some of them? This being said, there are certain things that are incompatible with Christianity. For example, God did not create man. Jesus is not the Son of God. There is no life after death. Note that I am not comparing communism and Christianity, saying that they are similar in substance to one another. I'm merely using one to help us understand the other at a deeper level. The question then is, is there a belief that is incompatible with communist ideology? One that is similar to the three beliefs that I have just mentioned that just are incompatible with any real understanding of Christianity. The so-called architect of modern China, Deng Xiaoping, once stated that it doesn't matter whether a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. But for the founder of communism, Karl Marx, the man whose writings constitute the canonical body of scientific knowledge for this ideology, it really does matter what colour the cat is. One cat can only be a cat that is that colour through exploitation. There is a profoundly moral component to the colour of the cat. One that cannot just be waved away with a cutesy saying. A key to communism then is a particular understanding of the market, irrespective of state-market relations. Communist ideology would dictate that it only matters what kind of market China has, not whether China is a communist country with a veneer of market economics, or whether it is a capitalist country with a nominally communist government. It is a circle that cannot be squared if we are to stick closely to the fundamentals of the ideology. Something has been squared, of course. We do have a supposed one-party state that presides over a more or less kind of market economy. But what we don't have, if we are to take the ideology seriously, at its word and in line with its canonical text, is a genuine communist society. This is not a, well, each system of ideas, religious, political, economic, has to be adapted for local conditions on the ground. This is something we see historically, of course. But eviscerating this understanding of the market, the Marxist understanding of the market, is like a practicing Christian saying there is no afterlife. At some point, you need to give the system of beliefs another name, for the old one doesn't hold if you no longer adhere to its core values. Why is this important? Well, it means that we must think carefully about how we understand China, the home of a huge swathe of humanity, and of course, of Chinese espionage. Instead of 1.4 billion ideologically committed communists, what we essentially have is a country with a rich and complex history, 
that has contributed so much to the journey of our species that has been hijacked by an ideology that didn't work in practice in China or anywhere else, really. But rather than admit this and reform its politics and economics, it has chosen to change the economy while holding on to political power at all costs. Even if that cost is the surrender of the middle initial from its acronym. For Marx, it was all about political economy, both fused together, not two free-floating domains. Boil this all down for us, Hammond. Okay, let me give you one example. After the United States, China has more billionaires than anywhere else in the world. Now, I'm pretty sure that someone who is buried in Highgate Cemetery in London with a big bushy beard must be spinning in his grave. And I want to just touch on a few of the people that you mention in the book who I think are particularly fascinating. So, One that many of our listeners and many people don't know about is Arthur Martin. And I think that he's just such a fascinating figure. Can you just tell our listeners who he is and why he's important? Arthur Martin, good question, was an MI5 officer. He uh, was a skilled MI5 officer, but he was caught up um, in this conspiracy theory. And it is, I'm saying that not as a sort of term of derision, but it is a conspiracy and it's a theory about MI5's Director General Roger Hollis. So Martin, Arthur Martin was part of the group that believed that Roger Hollis, the head head of MI5, was a, a Soviet agent. No evidence has emerged from KGB records or uh, Soviet military intelligence archives or interviews to suggest that this was the case. But it's impossible, as with so much else, it's impossible to prove a negative. So it's still possible uh, that Roger Hollis was, in fact, a Russian agent. I don't think he was. I think the evidence suggests that he wasn't. There are a series of operations, um, series of counter-espionage investigations under Roger Hollis's watch that if he had been a Russian agent it seems inexplicable to think that someone would have allowed um, the British successes that that, that, that that they did in counter-espionage investigations if he had really been. And then, and then I'll just share, with, uh, I, I would also agree with what Ben McIntyre said in his recent book, Agent Sonia, which is, I think, the most telling evidence that Roger Hollis was not a long-term Soviet agent is the fact that this would be an absolutely irresistible propaganda victory for Putin. If it turned out that Russian services had had a head of MI5 as a Soviet agent, we can imagine that Putin would have, considering the state of the world right now, have revealed that in order to humiliate the British government. Arthur Martin was caught up in that uh, and followed the investigations to the end uh, and was convinced along with Peter Wright that Hollis was a 
uh, a Soviet agent. Another person that I just want to briefly discuss is uh, James Angleton. <laughs> so this is linked. Um, so Angleton, Arthur Martin, you know, investigating Galitskin's uh, five, Peter Wright, the early part of his career, a very gifted scientific intelligence officer trying to drag MI5 into the modern age. Angleton, very brilliant, capable man, but... It almost seems like all three of them, post Philby, just start chasing ghosts for the rest of their career uh, and they find the ghosts all over the place. So I just wonder if you could talk about that. Almost the, the effect that the that Philby's defection that the Cambridge Five had on Western counterintelligence because it seems to go a bit skewy after that. Do you, do you see that same change? I... I would say, Andrew, not just a bit skewy, it goes completely skewy. Um, and th- <laughs> I was this was, <laughs> this is, this is the so called, we're talking about the so called Angleton monster plot, which is that there are other uh, unidentified Soviet agents lurking within. It, you're absolutely right. It's the personal level of betrayal felt by James Angleton and the CIA, felt by Peter Wright felt by um, Arthur Martin and MI5, the impact of Philby's betrayal on them almost, you can say, understandably led to this wilderness of mirrors in which how many other Philbys are there out there that we don't know about? And it's a tragedy. It was an absolute tragedy. James Angleton, the head of... CIA counterintelligence in the 1960s ended up turning away genuine defectors, believing that they were plants. And both British and US counterintelligence tied themselves in knots as they tried to search for other unidentified Philbies. It it all stems, Andrew, from your very good point, from the sense of personal betrayal um, they've been friends with Philby. Well, certainly Angleton. Angleton had been his drinking partner. Um, and actually to have this was a, like a dagger through the, the heart. Um, and that's what led to this sort of labyrinthine wilderness of mirrors in which any, everyone was a potential Soviet source. And, and just to very briefly just, you know, try to give them some of the benefit of the doubt. It reminds me of a point that you make in the book about holding to contradictory ideas in mind at the same time. So, uh, for example, there were actually Soviet spies in the heart of the American government, but Joe McCarthy was wrong. Uh, So, you know, that's one example of a contradiction. But the other one was you know, Angleton, Wright, Martin, they all went down this wilderness of mirrors and saw ghosts everywhere. But as Philby proved, there were actually moles in the heart of the British establishment. So it's not like they were completely delusional to think that there were other people. I mean, the fourth man comes out in 79, the fifth man comes out in 1990. I mean, there's this constant drip, drip, drip of 
moles being discovered. I, I can't remember who it was that said it, but they said if Philby's a Soviet mole, then anybody can be a Soviet mole. You know, he is the last person we would ever consider. So by that yardstick, why wouldn't you see Soviet moles everywhere? That's right, exactly. And that's the, the, that is the source of so much problem is that there was a logic there. I mean, there's an old phrase that what's the difference between counterintelligence and lunacy? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a Rolodex. So that's the difference between the two. So you're a lunatic with a Rolodex if you're, if you're involved in counterintelligence. Now, obviously, people listening to uh, this podcast will disagree with that, and I disagree with that. But it's said in jest. Another, another phrase comes to mind is the Woody Allen line, isn't it? where um, he's um, seeing enemies everywhere, a conspiracist. And someone says to the character, Woody Allen's character, well, you know, there's a name for people like you. He said, yeah, I know. Observant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm seeing things that you can't see and there's a monster plot out there. Well, there were genuine conspiracies, as you said, profound conspiracies. And Soviet intelligence achieved some unprecedented successes in terms of penetration of Western services. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they were unidentified um, other Soviet agents lurking within. Having said all that, Andrew, there's certainly some very inexplicable and strange developments um, about Gordievsky and Aldrich Ames which I touch on in the book. Mm -hmm. And let's just go on to China now for the final part of the interview. So we're talking about uh, Russia. It still thinks it's a great power, but really it's not. Um, it's trying to level the playing field by playing a spoiler role, by, you know, electoral interference and so forth. So help us understand the role that China plays in your book. Like, what, what's China doing? China... Um, like Russia, viewed America's so-called war on terror and the profound um, shift of intelligence resources and national security resources in the West to counter terrorism after 9-11 as an opportunity to instigate an, an intelligence offense, proactive offense against the U.S. and its Western allies with the aim of making China into a great power and a superpower. In 2005, the Ministry of State Security effectively declared war on the U.S. intelligence community. Now, this was at the same moment when there was much discussion in the West about economic liberalization. Uh, e economic development in China would lead to greater liberalization there and would lead to its incorporation uh, into the uh, as a responsible player and, and to, on the world stage. In fact, when we, and this is through interviews I've had with CIA officers with deep expertise on China, the MSS had no intention, the Ministry of State Security had no intention of playing by the Western rules. They were seeking to overturn and break the rules and supplant the US in Southeast Asia. That was in 2005, 6, 7, when she came, since she has come into power, that uh, grand strategy has become 
even more aggressive and not look to just supplant the U.S. in Southeast Asia, but to rival the U.S. on the world stage. And once again, it seems to me that like the first Cold War, intelligence is at the front line of of these geopolitical uh, events, a clash. And once again, it seems to me that Western intelligence services are on the back foot uh, against China in a similar way to uh, the way the Western services were with the Soviet Union after 1945. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, I, I, I essentially conclude that China's intelligence services are like the KGB on steroids. And at the end of the book as well, you outline seven steps that can be taken for the West to uh, retool, uh, to orientate itself towards this Cold War 2.0. So we don't have time to go into all seven of the steps, unfortunately. Uh, but just generally, how, you know, if, if you were to give it a grade, how well is US intelligence you know, making the shifts that you see necessary, whether it regards to artificial intelligence, machine learning, cyber, all of these things, would you give it a a B minus, an an A plus? Uh, sorry to get all professor on you, but you know, um, this is part of your job. <laughs> yeah, what would you what would you give it? And where you know, is is it moving in that direction, or do you just not even see the shift? I think I definitely see the shift. And so if you'd asked me to make the grade a couple of years ago when I first started thinking about this, and it was U.S. Congress, according to the congressional inquiries into U.S. intelligence and the threat from China and Chinese intelligence. You know, in 2019, the Congress said that it's wholly unprepared to meet this challenge. So that then I think we're talking about a grade C or a D. I think things are improving I think that there are... It's not going to get you into Harvard? It's probably not going to get you into, <laughs> into Harvard. I think that what I'd like to sort of leave your listeners with is, and I think an important corrective, that Cold War II, that I think we are, if when you see it from intelligence and national security, we are undoubtedly in a Cold War. And actually, we can all hope that it stays cold and doesn't turn hot. That's my starting point. But that doesn't, of course, mean that it's a, it's a simple replay of Cold War One in the 20th century. The Cold War Two, yes, intelligence and national security are again at the forefront, and spies and spying are right at the forefront. But they have, but they are being used in very different ways. So this century's intelligence conflict, as you pointed out, is about data. It's about controlling data. It's about processing data through the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. We are, the US government, Western governments, we are in a race, a sprint for AI um, to process data collected uh, against principally China. We all should hope that Western powers are meeting that challenge. As a historian, I'm not privy to the uh, intricacies of what's going on in terms of using AI within um, intelligence communities in order to give analysts the best possible data to make decisions. Um, but I, I am hopeful that U.S. 
creativity and ingenuity will come through for this challenge as it did in the last Cold War. So what we need is, it seems to me, blue sky thinking in the same way that, that drove the CIA to pioneer the creation of U-2 spy planes when traditional espionage meant that they couldn't collect intelligence on closed police states behind the Iron Curtain. The CIA came up with the U-2 spy plane. In the same way, today, the challenge on, of understanding closed police states, Russia and China and other regimes, the future of that lies with commercially provided open source intelligence, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I, I think we should all hope, pray that we have the best possible brains doing that. Well, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I easily could have went on for several more hours, but uh, I think we've done a good job of, of digging into your book. And congratulations once again. Thanks, Andrew. I really enjoyed our conversation. And um, please, listeners, if you have any questions or follow-ups about the book, I'd love to hear from you. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. One major difference in North Korea compared to other intelligence agents in different countries may be that North Korea is rigorous in teaching ideological education. It is fundamental and basic curriculum for all NSA agents to be taught the principles of Kim Il-sungism and Kim Jong-il-ism. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond. And my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Spy Museum.